Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is audio director, sound designer, and composer Nick Peck. First of all, wouldn't you like to have some new revenue from YouTube? Well, there's a company called Create Music Group that specializes in finding YouTube money basically finding money that you didn't know existed. And they're doing this for some big stars like Migos, Post Malone, and Future, just to name a few. What they do is they identify music that's being used without permission. And the reason why it's not being detected by YouTube's own detection software called Content ID is the fact that it might be a bot account or a fan site that took the music and sped it up or slowed it down because Content ID can't really identify that. Create Music Group has figured out a way to do that, and now they've also moved into mixtapes. Mixtapes, also a problem where there's a whole lot of songs that are put together, and therefore they're not really identified, again, by Content ID. And then finally, Russia. Russia is really big for YouTube. The problem is Russia kind of ignores intellectual property (laughs) when it comes down to it. So Create Music Group is also trying to figure this out over there, which would be a boon for big YouTube artists. So if you think that there's some income that you're not getting from YouTube, you might want to check these guys out, createmusicgroup.com, and maybe they can get you some more money. Now again, If you're only talking 100,000 or even just a million views, that might not be enough to really make this work. Don't forget, on YouTube, nothing really starts until we hit 50 million, and that's kind of a minor hit. Big hits are kind of like in the 500 million and going to a billion now. So you have to have substantial numbers in order for this to work. But if you're approaching that, this might be a way to go. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop and Q&A webinars, and for a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. I was reading an article on theringer.com, And the article was about 11 keys to keeping your band together. And I looked at those keys and I thought, "Ah, I can get behind seven of them, but not all 11. So here they are. I think these are a really good way to keep any band together. Number one is distribute the credit and revenue evenly. This has been done for a long, long time, and it's really been helpful for a lot of bands. Ones that come to mind are The Doors and U2, for instance. And you'll find that bands that don't do that Somewhere along the line, people get upset, especially when it comes to writing credits, because if you're in a room, people feel like you have something to do with the writing of that. So the easiest way is just say, okay, we're all in this together evenly. Number two is let everyone contribute creatively. This is really, really hard because every band usually has one leader and the leader kind of naturally dominates everything. And for better or for worse, that might be the sound of the band, but it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be happy unless they get some say in the creative workflow. So this is really important. Hard to do, important nonetheless. Number three is don't do hard drugs. I think that goes without saying. It's not good for your career and it's not good for your health. 
Number four, don't grow too fast. One of the things that seems to be the case in modern music is the faster you become a hit, the faster you also go away. The artists and bands that have a very slow climb and develop their audience one fan by one fan, those are the ones that tend to have the longest career. So you're much better off if you follow this path than going the path of the instant success because it only lasts for a little while, usually. Number five is don't tour in a bubble. What that means is don't constantly tour. You have to take some time off. The more you tour, the more you find that you're detached from reality because you're always out in the road. And we all know that being out in the road is not the way to stay sane and not stay connected to your music or to your business. So you have to take some breaks. Number six, avoid rash decisions. It's really easy in the business to make a decision without thinking about it that will hurt you down the road. And the one story I keep on remembering is one that Ken Scott, the famous producer engineer, told me. He was engineering the band Kansas. And they told him the story about how when they were first getting signed, a big packet of documents arrived at the club they were playing at. And they didn't consult an attorney or anything. They just signed them all, of which they signed their publishing away. And it cost them millions of dollars in the end. So don't make rash decisions. And finally, beware of side projects. Yeah, they're a good creative outlet, but you know what? They can begin to rob the main band, the main artist, from the mojo that you need to keep on going. So it's a good thing to have them because sometimes it's a good outlet, but don't let it dominate your music. I think if you're in a band, these are some really good keys to observe if you want to stay together and have a long life and a lot of success. My guest this week is composer, sound designer, musician, and technologist Nick Peck. For the last 20 years, Nick has been a sound designer and audio director for interactive projects and games at Skywalker Sound, Activision, LucasArts, and now at Disney Publishing Worldwide. Nick runs the audio department there at Disney that handles sound design, music composition, and dialogue casting, recording, and editing for a host of award-winning iOS apps for franchises like Wreck-It Ralph, Monsters Incorporated, Finding Nemo, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, Brave, Up, Toy Story, Cars, Cinderella, Tangled, and many, many more. Nick is also a keyboard player and really into modular synthesis. So he talked about this at length during a podcast, as well as his take on the latest in the DAW world. We spoke via Skype from Studio Disney in Burbank, California. I just checked. You were on four years ago on this podcast. Yeah. On episode 12. Let's talk about Disney because... You don't speak about it much, and, and you can't. There are many things are proprietary, I understand. But one of the things you, you have talked about is the fact that you've explored other digital audio workstations, and you're using Cubase a lot. So what brought that on? So my thoughts on the digital audio workstation situation is as follows. Um, after being involved in, you know, after being involved in this kind of work for over 20 years, uh, some of the most important things for me when I'm working on a new project is to be able to get into it and to be able to work quickly, to be able to not to not have a huge barrier between me and the work that I need to do. And um, I was the biggest Pro Tools supporter out there for many, many years. And, you know, I still use it when I have to. But in my opinion, 
they haven't innovated in the way that every other digital audio workstation out there that I've seen does. And a couple of very simple examples would be the ability to generate your own custom key commands, uh, you know, the ability to be able to really personalize the, uh, you know, the system and be able to have it look and behave the way that you want it to. Um, but a bigger problem with, than that for me is that it continues to have stability issues. You know, I'm in the middle of working on post-production and it says the video engine has just shut down. And I have absolutely no idea why the video engine has just shut down and there's no way to figure it out. And getting on the phone with Avid tech support is something that I want to avoid. Um, so the result of that is that I get stuck and then I try to fix it and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And it's that lack of stability um, that has really turned me off to Pro Tools uh, more than anything else. Um, as far as music production things, I never thought it was particularly good for MIDI. And so I've, I've experimented with every digital audio workstation out there for music. I started with Performer back in the, back in the early 90s. Yeah, Performer 1. That's how far back it goes. And then Studio Vision. Um, and then I tried Cubase. Uh, in the 90s for the Mac, and it was absolutely terrible. And then uh, I got involved in Logic, and I started working on Logic for uh, about 10 years or so, and I loved it. And then um, I, and it's a fantastic, Logic is fantastic software. Um, but uh, I ended up hiring a new composer here at Disney, a wonderful, incredibly talented guy named Billy Martin. And he uh, said he was he was a Cubase user, and he said, you know, I need to get a copy of Cubase. And I said, of course, I'm happy to. I ordered it for him. And then I sat down and just watched him compose in a combination of Cubase and, uh, and, the, uh, and the, the Vienna Ensemble Pro thing with samples being played back through there. And it was the most powerful system I had ever seen for being able to create orchestral music in the box, to be able to record jazz and rock in the box. And I loved it so much that I ordered a copy of Cubase for myself and made the and made the changeover from Logic to, to Cubase. And I think Cubase is absolutely fantastic. And it's uh, it's what I really love to be able to use when I'm doing MIDI music production. Now, there are two other uh, digital audio workstations that I use as well. And the, the three of these have sort of become my triumvirate. Okay, so the first one for doing straight up music MIDI production is Cubase. For doing post-production, I'm using Reaper. And I am so blown away by a couple of things about that software. The first one is the incredible configurability and the fact that you can go and do anything you want with it and create macros that do whatever you want and change the key commands all you want and change the theme if you don't like the way that it looks. Other people have made other themes out there that you can change. Um, but far more than that, uh, I, had, I don't think I've ever had Reaper crash on me once. It is as stable as you can get. And the other thing about it that's so amazing is that uh, the last time I downloaded the newest version, it was, I think it was about 16 megabytes, 16 megabytes oh. for the entire application. And the, the reason it's so small is because it's incredibly tight code. And so the result of that is that it opens instantly and it closes instantly. And it is the most responsive digital audio workstation software that I've ever seen, right? So they didn't create inefficient code and then hope that the speed of the computer that you're working on will make up for that. Instead, they've made the tightest code possible. And the result of that is when you're working on a reasonably fast machine or even the, the simple MacBook Air that I have here that I'm speaking to you on, uh, 
it, it, it works beautifully. It's snappy and responsive and immediate. And I have yet to find anything that I can't do in Reaper. And there are lots and lots and lots of things that I can do in Reaper that I haven't been able to find to be able to do in other digital audio workstation software. Now, you're talking about you're doing post in Reaper. That's correct. That blows my mind. I mean, that's one of the bastions that Pro Tools has over just about everybody else is the post abilities. But if you say that, in fact, Reaper has that, that's a game changer. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it is. I still use Pro Tools when I have to, um, and I use it whenever I'm working with other people. So certainly at Disney, I'm about 50-50. I'll go back and forth between using Pro Tools HD and uh, using Reaper. When I'm using Reaper at Disney, everyone else is using Pro Tools. So what I'm doing is I'm creating stems and then bouncing them out so that uh, people can bring them into, you know, so if I'm doing sound design on something and then, you know, somebody else is doing the music, we bounce out our stems. And then if someone else is mixing it in Pro Tools, it's, it, it makes it incredibly easy for them to be able to go and use it for, uh, you know, to be able to you pull that material into Pro Tools. And I'm the only one, I'm the only one here so far who, uh, who, who is using Reaper, and I'm trying to convince, uh, you know, my colleagues here, and no one, no one's having any part of it as of yet. So, <laughs> but, uh, but for me, um, it, it it's great. And at home, I've gotten rid of all of my Avid hardware, and I got rid of Pro Tools, and I don't even have the choice to use it at home. I use Reaper, and I use Cubase, and then the third piece of software that I use is DaVinci Resolve, and that's a video editing and audio editing package. Um, it's, uh, we can get into that in a minute or we can talk about Reaper, uh, some more. What would you like to do? Let's talk about DaVinci. Okay. So DaVinci Resolve is a video editing package created by a company called Blackmagic Design, and they primarily make their money through selling high-end broadcast hardware, right? So they sell cameras and they sell, um, you know, all sorts of video and audio accelerator cards and they sell control surfaces and so forth. Um, they purchased Fairlight Audio, the Fairlight from Australia, from the 80s, you know, this legendary company that made one of the very first samplers. Um, and Fairlight has been making a, a living for a long time in a much, you know, in a much more low-key way, at least in the States, um, by selling post-production software and selling, you know, selling stuff for sort of high-end broadcast. And what DaVinci did was they bought Fairlight. And as a result, they took the Fairlight audio code base and they have been integrating it into DaVinci Resolve. So Resolve started out as a tool for colorists, right? So it started out to allow you to be able to do color correction. Then they said, you know what? Let's put video editing in. And so then it became a video editor as well as a color corrector. And then they said, oh, let's put audio in. So they bought Fairlight and now that's the other mode. That's the other function that it has. So you go in, you bring media in, you then go and do your video editing. You can do your color correction and you can go to the Fairlight page and you can do whatever audio editing you want to do that you can't do uh, in the basic regular sort of edit page. Um, and then from there, you know, there's a deliver page where you bounce the, the content out and it's fantastic. And the most, the, the biggest, most amazing thing about it um, is the price point, which is free. And the reason that it's free uh, is, as I said, because they're primarily in the business of selling their hardware. So um, I have yet to find something that I can't do that I want to do with the free version of DaVinci Resolve. Eventually, 
I'm going to spend the $2.99 and buy the pro version. Uh, the only reason I haven't done so yet is because it doesn't have any features that I don't that I need. But I want to support the company because I think that what they're doing is so great and their software is solid and it's just a joy to work on. The editing is fantastic in it. So when do you use that in place of Reaper? Yeah. Um, well, I use DaVinci for all of the video editing that I'm doing. So I started a uh, I started a YouTube channel um, back in December called Under the Big Tree, and I've created I think 27 videos for it so far as of this uh, as of this recording. And uh, I realized that I needed to come up with a workflow um, that would work for somebody who hadn't done a lot of video editing ever. Right? I mean, I worked in iMovie and and little things like that to be able to do small projects for people, you know, whenever somebody needed something, but I needed a real video editor. And so I went through and took a look at all of the open source editors, right? I know that, you know, Adobe Premiere Pro is the big one and Final Cut Pro um, is the big one as well and Avid Media Composer, right? So there are these big packages out there that people use, but I knew that there had to be an open source solution out there that would work for me. And so I tried three or four of them, uh, Shotcut and a couple of others and, you know, they're all wonderful. God, you know, God bless the open source community for making this stuff and making software that's available for anybody to be able to use. But then when I discovered DaVinci Resolve, I realized that it was a total game changer for me. And so I downloaded it and I climbed up the learning curve that you have to always climb up, you know, with any piece of software to be able to get facile at it. And uh, within a month or so, I felt comfortable in it. And now, you know, I know it like the back of my hand and I absolutely love it. Okay, I want to touch on your YouTube channel in a second, but let's talk about the basis for the YouTube channel, which sure. is your love of modular synthesis. Right now, you know more about modular synthesis than anybody I know. You're very plugged into that. So what I'm curious about is it's such a huge community, and when you go to NAM, there's so much activity around the modular systems and around the modular areas. And yet, I don't know of a lot of music that's being generated by it. Am I wrong? Am I missing something here? I mean, I don't see people on stage with modular synths. Uh, you, you, are, you are to some degree. I think that it's very much still a, a relatively underground thing for a couple of different reasons. So, so there's, a lot, there's a lot of stuff for me to jump in on there. Um, the first thing I would say is that the current generation. So modular has been around since the mid 60s, right? Bob Moog and Don Buchla started inventing these devices and they were the first synthesizers. I mean, the synthesizer that you hear on Abbey Road is a Moog modular synthesizer, right? I mean, that's what it was. They didn't have keyboards until uh, until Bob invented the mini Moog. And before that, you would have a keyboard function device that you would plug into a modular synthesizer to be able to make your sound. So they've been around for a long time and they've been around forever, right? So there's always been some uh, some small sort of mom and pop shops that have been building both modular synthesizer modules as well as kits. Um, and so there's been, you know, sort of the small group of people um, who've wanted to, to work on them. And I was absolutely always one of them because I grew up going to school studying modular synthesizers. I grew up in the Bay Area. And so, you know, I learned synthesis on a Buchla 100, on a Moog Model 55. And, you know, I knew Don Buchla peripherally and I knew Bob Moog peripherally. And, you know, I knew all of the, the sort of the legendary characters um, of that whole movement. And so that stuck with me very deeply. However, 
as I got out of school and academia and moved into actually trying to make a living doing audio production, um, modular synthesizers really, uh, you know, they had to take a back seat. It was a wonderful piece of art. Uh, but I had other things that I needed to do and they weren't appropriate for, you know, my needing to sound design, uh, you know, stuff against picture, for example. Um, and plus modular synthesizers are, are, they're expensive, right? I mean, they're just, they're a much higher price point than you being able to go out and buy a digital keyboard of some sort, or now, you know, plugins. I mean, everything is a, is a mini keyboard plugged into a computer. They're powerful enough to be able to give you all of the software uh, instruments and sampler instruments you could ever want. And so it becomes something more of a luxury item. But here's what happened. In the mid-90s, uh, there was a German inventor named Dieter Depfer who came upon, who, who decided he was going to build modules. And what he ended up doing was creating a standardized size and a standardized power supply for, for modular synthesizers. And I can't remember if he named it or whether this became the name, but the standard uh, is known as Eurorack. Mm -hmm. um, and once there was a standard that everybody could agree to in terms of, you know, minus 12 and plus 12 volts and positive five volts as well, and a particular form factor for the case and beyond that, the sky's the limit. You can make it analog, you can make it digital, you can do anything you want with it, as long as it sticks to you know those standards and a one volt per octave protocol for pitch, right? So all of a sudden, uh, all of these mom and pop shops started creating modules. Uh, a lot of them were kits because there's a big DIY community around this whole thing. Um, and, and, uh, and it started exploding. It took, I would say it probably took about 10 years uh, for it to really explode. Um, but at this point, you know, there's, there's company after company after company that are making Eurorack modules, including, you know, all of the big boys. I talked to Dave Rossum, the founder of EMU, um, at NAM 2018, because he has started a company in which he's creating Eurorack modular devices. Dave Smith has released uh, a couple of Eurorack modules, right? Moog has released a ton of Eurorack modules and their Mother 32 systems. So um, we're not just talking about mom and pop shops anymore. We're talking about the big people involved in synthesis now. Um, I think Korg might even have. I'd have to, I'd have to remember. So, so this has become a stand, and Roland has for sure. So this has become a standard uh, in which the big companies and the, you know, sort of the larger players have come in and have started adding on to this system, right? Um, so, so that's sort of a background about the history of Eurorack. The reason that I think it's becoming so, so big and so popular, certainly among underground people, um, is because of the fact that by definition, you are creating a system for yourself that absolutely nobody else on earth has. You are creating your own instrument in your own image. And the way that you do that is by making decisions as to which modules you want to buy and what you know your goal is in terms of being able to you know, create your electronic music goals as a result. So everything that you do uh, is completely unique. And that aspect of both designing it and the music that you create as a result of the choices that you have designed um, I think is incredibly compelling. That's reason number one. Reason number two is because uh, we all spend all day staring at computer screens. I know you do, and I know I do, certainly. And I love computers, and God knows I've been a nerd. You know, this is I'm coming up on 40 years of, uh, you know, being a deep seven-day-a-week computer nerd here. Um, and I love computers, and I always will. But 
they are not necessarily the best user interface for uh, creative music creation, right? Bobby, you're a guitarist yeah, yeah. and you know how satisfying it is for you to be able to play the guitar. I know how satisfying it is for me to play the piano or the Hammond organ or the bass or to sing. I mean, these are, you know, these are these, these, these are these, um, oh, what's the word that I'm looking for? There is a visceral kind of, kind of wonderful immediacy to be, to be able to create on an expressive instrument and software synthesizers and things are not necessarily the best the, the best venue for that. And so the reason that I think that Eurorack and Modular in general has really um, come into its own is because of the fact that it's the, the quintessential opposite of menu diving through a keyboard that's got loads and loads and loads of different menus. It's the opposite of going and trying to create a synthesizer sound in a digital audio workstation, which nine times out of 10 means you're just looking for a, a preset and using that and maybe tweaking it a little bit. This is something, there is this ephemeral nature to modular in which you can't save what it is that you're doing, right? You put the patches in, you create the whole thing, you record your sound, uh, and then once that's done, you can never replicate it again. There's no way to be able to store it. And so there's this incredible immediacy and in the moment aspect to of it that just is so appealing to me. Um, I just love it. It reminds me so much of, uh, uh, you know, of a lot of the experimental music that I studied in graduate school, right? I mean, you would have some people doing modulars, but it was, you know, other people, David Tudor and Pauline Oliveros and all of these incredible musicians that were out there creating their own little electronic setup of some sort that was utterly unique and they would make some utterly unique music with it. And that's one of the reasons why I think that, uh, why I think Eurorack is in the ascendancy at this point. Okay, so as a result, You've looked deeply into this and deeply into what's new and what the trends are, and that resulted in your YouTube channel, which isn't entirely around that, but mostly. It's mostly around that. I wanted to create a, uh, uh, I wanted to create a YouTube channel that would allow me to be able to give back to the community. I've always been, um, you know, I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to make a living doing the thing that I love uh, for the majority of my career. And I, you know, really count my blessings along those lines. Uh, I'm now at the phase of my life in which that aspect of things is, is very stable. And every other aspect of my life is about teaching. I'm constantly teaching my children. Um, I'm trying to help them grow up to be the best kids they can be. I'm deeply involved in the Boy Scouts. And so I do lots of mentoring of, uh, you know, boys between about the ages of 12 and 16, 17. Um, and, and everything that I'm doing is really about trying to be able to pass on what I know and what I've learned to everybody else. Uh, who's interested. And so the beautiful thing about the internet and the long tail aspect of it and YouTube and the long tail aspect of that is that you can go and create whatever your vertical niche is. You can get in there and you can talk about stuff. And there are other people on the planet who are interested in the same stuff that you are. And if they can find you uh, and you speak to them, then, you know, then everybody wins. Then I'm able to get some of this material out there and it, you know, helps brighten up somebody else's day or it helps teach them. So when I started, I didn't know where I was going to go with it. I knew that I was going to do modular and I knew that I wanted to talk about audio production and I certainly wanted to talk about music theory and composition, a lot of the other things that I have training in and that I use every day. And then I also wanted to work on uh, tabletop games because I really love 
the analog board games. I think it's a wonderful way to be able to get away from the computer and to be able to socialize with other people. So I didn't know what was going to be the fit when I started. And the result of that was that I started out with a fairly broad brush. I tried a lot of different things. And then I took a look at what uh, I was getting traction with, what it was that people were interested in. And what people were interested in were the videos that I was doing on modular synthesis. And so uh, interviews with Dave Rossum and other people like that at NAMM, um, other things that I've done, uh, I'm working on a whole series about creating a modular synthesis system for live performance, you know, for improvisation and for that kind of thing. And that's gotten a ton of traction. Uh, people are really into that. I've gone and, and you know, videotaped a couple of uh, performances of other people and posted them to my site. I just finished doing a, uh, a review, my first sort of gear review of a modular thing, immutable instruments, plates, and that you know, has taken off and people are really loving it. So the result of that, Bobby, is that I think it's fairly safe to say at this point that I don't need to do anything other than modular synthesis on that channel for a long time to come. I sat down this morning and made a list of uh, episodes that I would like to do. And I mean, the list went all the way down the page. I've got enough ideas to do the next two years of this stuff. So hopefully I'll be able to keep doing it. It's just, it's been, it has been my artistic outlet now. I no longer have time to go out and gig. I no longer have time to be able to go and, you know, record music in studios with other people. That's just something that doesn't happen when you become, you know, a middle-aged parent with two kids. You know, your life changes. Uh, and so the result of that is being able to create something in which I'm giving back and sharing of myself uh, is this is now my artistic expression and I'm extremely satisfied with it. Okay. All that being said, Nick, what would be the one thing that most people either don't understand about modular synthesis or just don't know? Oh, my goodness. That is a great question. I think that people don't understand the fact that it is this wide open vista that you can combine digital devices, analog devices, and your own DIY devices. You can make your own stuff and you can put all of this stuff together into some Frankensteinian hodgepodge to be able to make uh, something that is uniquely yours and that reflects you know, whatever it is that your aesthetics are. Let me add one other thing onto that. I think that a lot of people get put off by um, the fact that a lot of modules are very expensive and they are. I mean, you can easily spend three, four, five, six, seven hundred dollars on a single module. Now, these modules are very big and they're powerful and they're wonderful and they're great. But I think that that puts a lot of people off. And what people maybe don't realize is that there is a ton of capability of being able to build a modular synthesizer system on your own inexpensively by using a combination of Depfer modules. Remember Dieter Depfer, the guy that I mentioned? Yeah. He makes modules that are very reasonably priced, uh, as well as building your own stuff. So there are a number of kit places out there where you can go and you can buy kits and they're, you know, it's pennies on the dollar rather relative to buying uh, something, you know, out of the store. And you can, as a result, build yourself up a system for much less money than if you were to just buy things new. Um, and you'll learn an awful lot about electronics in the process. You know, I get a lot of press releases, especially from one PR person in particular about new modules coming out. So I have a feel for what's going on for the trends. But I'm certainly not into it in the depth that you are, or not even close. What do you see as the trend in modules? Mm. 
That's a great question. Here is my, here is my answer. Um, I would say that as more people, so modular systems started off in a very granular way. So the original Depfer modules were very similar to the way that a Buchla or a Moog style module would be in which one module would have one function. It might be an LFO or it might be a low pass filter or it might be an oscillator or something like that. Um, what I have seen happen over time is that the modules themselves are getting bigger and they're becoming more multifunction. So there are a lot of modules that are coming out um, that are uh, basically an entire synth voice. So you might have, you know, an oscillator, a filter, some sort of an envelope generator, maybe even some effects all built into one module. And the reason for that is as your rack expands and gets bigger, there are more people that are getting into the hobby that don't have the depth of experience in which they can, you know, understand how to be able to plug those pieces together. It can be bewildering, right? I mean, that's why I'm doing this YouTube channel. Um, and so the result of that is that manufacturers, you know, people are very comfortable buying synth voices. And so you can buy a whole thing that does a whole lot of stuff at once and be able to put it in and you're making noise right away. You don't have to, you know, you're not just buying a filter and then waiting a month to buy an oscillator and saying, gee, wow, that's pretty boring. So, so it's the equivalent of a channel strip. Yes, it is. It is. It's the equivalent of a channel strip with an oscillator built in, right? With 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 a noise generator of some sort built in. Um, also, people are, you know, the the beautiful thing about Eurorack is that it really does seamlessly blend the analog and digital worlds, right? It doesn't matter what the or what the you know initial generation device is of the whole thing. It all outputs analog voltage, and if there is a you know digital to analog converters inside of the box. You don't even necessarily know, you, nor do you even, in fact, need to know unless you're really interested in what's under the hood. The point is that if it operates in an expressive manner, then it's really fitting with the with the aesthetic of, of uh, modular synthesis. Yeah. There's so much more that I want to talk to you about, but I do want to touch on other places first. Tell me about your carpal tunnel surgery, because that's something that affects so many people, and it's terrifying to many people that are suffering with it. I'm delighted to talk about this. That is not a question I was expecting to answer, but I'm happy to. So I have these big, thick, you know, beefy arms and hands, right? And so the result of that was that I never thought through life that I would ever get carpal tunnel. I never thought it would be something that would happen to me. I had assumed that it was people that have very thin wrists and that, uh, you know, have more delicate hands would have those kinds of things. Uh, and what I learned was that was utter nonsense, that uh, that didn't happen. The reality is that 40 years of being on a piano keyboard and on a computer keyboard for, you know, the majority of the time that I was awake, you know, eventually took its toll. Okay, what carpal tunnel syndrome is, it's, it's, it's a repetitive stress syndrome. What happens is you keep using the same muscles and the same tendons over and over and over again. And over time, the tendons and the ligaments that are inside of your arm and your wrist that feed your hand become inflamed. And just like when you sprain your ankle, uh, when the tendons inside become inflamed, they swell. And when, when they swell enough and when it becomes, you know, basically chronic swelling, um, there's so little room in the carpal tunnel in this little hole that goes between your arm and your hand that the median nerve, which is the primary nerve that serves uh, the first three fingers of your hand and part of the palm, gets pinched, right? So the tendons 
swell up, they push on the median nerve, and the result of that is that your hand doesn't work as well. Uh, typically, you'll find a lot of numbness, uh, a lot of tingling, uh, particularly in my case, when I woke up in the morning, uh, my hands would be numb for as long as a couple of hours. Uh, when I was driving a long distance, and I held my hand on the steering wheel, it was incredibly uncomfortable and I had to continuously move and shift the positions of my hands because they hurt so much. And needless to say, as a musician, this was, I mean, anybody would be terrified, but I was really, really terrified that everything that I knew was gonna come to an end. Um, and so the result of that was that I went in and I had people, you know, I had a, a, a doctor look at it. He immediately sent me to a specialist the specialists looked at it. They immediately sent me to um, a place where you do, uh, where, where, where basically they plug electrodes into your nerves on your arm, on your bicep, and, you know, by your elbow. And then they put a measurement thing on the tip of your finger, and they shoot electricity back and forth, and they measure how long and how efficiently the the signal is able to get there. And so the result of that is they can determine, you know, empirically the severity of your carpal tunnel syndrome because wow. that wow. that electrical information is going down your median nerve, right? So the result of that uh, is that it can tell you what the situation is. And they found I'm left-handed and they found that I had severe carpal tunnel in my left hand and a moderate carpal tunnel in my right hand. And so, you know, I tried doing physical therapy for several months. It basically did almost nothing, um, you know, and part of that was because I was too busy to be able to, you know, really continue doing the work at home and I should have. So part of it was lifestyle. Part of it was just that, you know, my carpal tunnel was pretty far gone. And so the result of that was that they finally um, sent me to a, an orthopedic surgeon uh, to be able to do the carpal tunnel surgery. Um, what the carpal tunnel surgery is, it's called carpal tunnel release surgery. It's not that scary. It's not that big of a deal. What they do is they go in to the, to the base of your palm, they go underneath your palm, and if you can imagine it, the backside of your hand and the backside of your wrist is all bone, right? You can go and feel it, but feel the underside of your wrist and you will see that there's a soft, squishy sort of area in between. That area um, is ligament. So imagine that it's a big rubber band that's holding everything in place there. And what the carpal tunnel release surgery does is it cuts that rubber band. The rubber band moves out of the way, which immediately opens up the space and therefore allows your median nerve to be able to function normally. Um, and it gives it, it gives it enough room to be able to work. And it's a in and out kind of operation. You go in, they do anesthetize you, but you know, I was in at six in the morning and I was out by 11 or 12 in the afternoon wow. and then back home wow. again. And the thing that was fascinating about it, the so, so the first one was my left hand. They did the operation and I was in the, I was in the operating room. I wasn't even in the recovery room yet. Um, I was coming out of the twilight sedation and I could immediately feel that the problem had been fixed. I mean, it was that fast. Wow. It was unbelievable. So then it was, you know, five days of lying around catching up on Netflix. Um, and uh, I, I didn't want to do my right hand yet because, you know, it's, it's, it's a big deal. And there's, you know, it, there's recovery time and stuff. And you can't do them both at the same time because then you'd be armless. You'd be handless because you have no use of your hand for three days at least. And then lifting things is a real problem after that. So a year went by 
and my right-hand carpal tunnel syndrome got worse and worse and worse to the point where literally I was waking up in the morning and the first two hours of the day, um, I had near total numbness in the first three fingers of my right hand. So um, I knew you know, that it was time to be able to deal with it, and so uh, I did. And um, I guess it's been about, yeah, it's been six weeks because I had my six-week follow-up yesterday. So it's been six weeks since they did the right-hand surgery the symptoms are completely gone. Uh, you know, I have occasional little sort of uh, electrical nerve um, signals that get sent incorrectly to my fingers, but that's just a matter of the fact that the nerve itself is healing. It's it's nothing. And, you know, I haven't had any numbness. I haven't had any tingling. My hands both work completely the way that they did. Uh, I'm able to lift things. I'm able to type. I'm able to play musical instruments. I'm able to do everything that I could do before I had the carpal tunnel syndrome and you know the only time that it was really hampering was when i was in the middle of it and so all that by way of saying if you're scared about this if you are feeling numbness and tingling in the first three fingers just the thumb the index finger and the middle finger of either of your hands go and get it looked at and it's not that big a deal the surgery isn't that big a deal and it's completely worth it it's been a life-altering uh, experience for me for sure well, there's several other people that I know that have had both hands done, and it seems yep. like if, I don't know if this is medically accurate or not, but from what you're saying and from comparing to my other friends, if one hand is having a problem, then most likely the other one is going to have it as well. Sure. I, I would imagine so. I mean, it depends on what you do with your hands, right? I mean, it's repetitive stress. In my case, because I'm left-handed, that meant that I was doing handwriting and other stuff uh, along those lines, so therefore it was worse. But yeah, you use both your hands to play an instrument, you use both your hands to play a keyboard, you use both your hands to drive a car, you use both of your hands for each of those things. And so I would imagine that whatever somebody's um, anatomical makeup is, if they, uh, you know, if they can be prone to having this habit happen as a problem, then it makes sense, it stands to reason that it would happen in both of your hands. Last question, Nick. I didn't get a chance to ask you this the first time around. But I'm glad that we got a chance to to revisit. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you received from somebody, or maybe you learned along the way? I love this. Thank you. This is a this is a great question, and I'm delighted to answer it for you, Bobby. When you are creating a business for yourself, when you're creating a career for yourself as a musician, as an audio professional, as whatever it is that you're doing, your goal is not the next gig your goal is the next 10 years and so the result of that is that i would much rather make less money on a gig and have them think that i was a nice person than go in and be bellicose or be uh, you know arrogant or any of those kinds of things and have somebody say well they got the job but i don't want to work with them next time so being a nice person having your diplomatic hat on and, you know, really being very flexible for other people, customer service. That's what it's all about. That's what gives you the repeat bookings. That's what gives you the ability for somebody to want to give you a job in which they're going to see you every day for years. Um, so I'll bet that Mike Rodriguez said almost nearly the same thing, but just be a nice person and always remember that and always treat everybody that you work with with respect. And I have to be enough of an optimist to think that the people that are nasty and that are out there backstabbing eventually 
you know, people see them for what they are, and they're not the ones that uh, keep the happy long career. It's the nice people that do. You can find out more about Nick at underthebigtree.com. Just the way it sounds, under the big tree, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby.